Three others who were in the apartment were arrested. Deborah Johnson, 19, Louis Trulock, 39, and Harold Bell, 23. The men were beaten in jail, and the sister, who was eight months pregnant, was thrown in a cold cell with nothing on but a house coat. They are all being charged with attempted murder. The police version of the raid is given by Sergeant Daniel Gross, leader of the assault. He claimed that he knocked on the door demanding entrance and stating that he had a warrant to search the apartment. He said that he got no response and forced the door open. Quote, as I entered the darkened apartment, I saw a girl on a bed holding a shotgun. As she fired the gun, Detective Duke Davis and three others fell to the kitchen floor. Unquote. He claimed that this started a gun battle in which, quote, if 200 shots were exchanged, that was nothing. But facts observed by hundreds of community people and members of the press who have examined the apartment make the police story impossible. The door through which Gross entered shows no signs of being forced, and it opens into the front room, not the kitchen. The only bullet hole in the front door entered from the outside. There were no bullet holes around the doors through which the police could have entered, and the walls where the police stood remained. The bullet-torn walls where the Panthers were standing and lying are a clear indictment of the police. So many contradictions have become evident that the police have been forced to change their story to cover some of the most glaring discrepancies. Further evidence came when an autopsy showed that Hampton had been drugged so heavily that he couldn't have gotten up, let alone fired a gun. This was clearly part of the plot, since members of the Black Panther Party do not take any kind of drugs. The day after this attack, Chicago police raided the apartment of Deputy Minister of Defense Bobby Rush. Rush and his wife and children expected trouble and had left the apartment. The following day, Rush was arrested for failing to register a firearm. Speakers at the Fred Hampton Memorial Rally made it clear that these assaults on the Black Panther Party will not halt the struggle. The first speaker is Bobby Rush. Welcome everyone. Welcome back to another great episode of the Act Protect Engage podcast. I'm your handsome host, Mr. Chase H. I hope you guys are having a great weekend so far. I hope you're having fun. Down here, it's gotten a lot warmer today, so I walked the dog. I did some stuff around the house, so I hope you're having a productive day so far. Today, we are talking about the Panthers' conflict with police, both locally and federally. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. It is tragic and it's sad, but it's a great example of how the government can repress and try to destroy dissident movements if we're not careful and if we don't speak out against it. God bless you guys. Stay safe. What's up, everybody? What's up? 
hope you guys are once again having a great Saturday. All right, so I have a few reminders. <laughs> I do the same thing every single episode. Please turn on your notifications because if you do, you will get updates from us. Every time a new podcast is streaming, your phone will let you know. All right. Also, subscribe and review us. Rate us if you have time. Give us five stars if we deserve it. But be honest because I do look at the reviews and the ratings and I adjust what I do depending on my feedback. All right. Also, we have a bunch of different social media platforms. We have Instagram at Ape Academy Podcast. We have Facebook, Ape Defensive Solutions. We have Twitter at A underscore defensive and TikTok at Ape Academy Podcast. Okay. All right. So that's done. That's out of the way. Thank you for joining me. Shout out to all of our listeners, both domestically and internationally. We love you guys. We do it for you. Our numbers are looking good. Please remember, 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 we're coming out with new episodes all the time. So check your phones because you might miss a new podcast because we're always out here grinding and getting after it. All right. So what are we talking about today? We're talking about Fred Hampton and the Chicago-based Black Panther chapter. Okay. So this is what probably you guys have heard about the most when it comes to the Panthers, the conflicts with police. Now, it is widely known that the FBI had created a specific task force designed to destroy homegrown movements, especially movements that preach uh, equality and civil rights, and the Black Panther Party definitely fell under those uh, criteria, right? So today's episode is entitled Public Enemy Number One, The Police at War with Panthers, all right? We got two sources, Black Against Empire, the history of the, and politics of the Black Panther Party by Waldo E. Martin and Joshua Bloom. And we have Britannica.com. Actually, we have three sources and Encyclopedia.com. So those have been very helpful to us. All right, so let's start. So the last episode, we, 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 we stopped with the Panthers beginning to build momentum in Chicago. Okay, so the Panthers started off in Chicago as a small, just, you know, local organization. Um, They didn't get any national attention. They didn't get a whole lot of press. But once uh, their movement became national, right, it got the attention of the national office and the public through their conflicts with local law enforcement and the FBI. That's how the Chicago-based Panthers really blew up. Right. That's how they got their attention was unfortunately through a direct targeting program. All right. And we're going to discuss it today. All right. So let's start off. By May of 1969, the Panthers were building a strong organization in Chicago. Many of the new members were energetic and enthusiastic youth. Right. Most of them were in their late teens and their early 20s. That is the perfect like age group if you want a youthful, energetic, really passionate, dedicated membership, all right? 20-year-old Panther Barbara Sankey, who grew up on the west side of Chicago, she directed the Free Breakfast for Children program. The program served about 500 breakfasts to children every week at three sites across the city. One meat company 
gave the Panthers 50 pounds of sausage every week. And the Joe Lewis Milk Company, they donated 500 cartons of milk to the program each week. So this free breakfast for kids program, they fed a lot of kids across the city, right? From the west side to the south side, it fed um, underprivileged children uh, with, you know, parents maybe were working two jobs and didn't have time to feed their kids before they went off to school. This program did that, right? 20-year-old Billy Brooks, another West Side native, directed the internal education cadre of 15 Panthers. Each member was required to closely read a dozen books, six by or about Mao Zedong, and one each by Huey P. Newton, Franz Fanon, and Karl Marx. Each member of the cadre was then tasked with helping another Panther understand the text. The choice of literature reflected the Panthers' increased focus on Marxist ideology, especially Maoist theory. All the Panthers were educated in Marxism, were educated in socialism, right? They had to read certain books in order to maintain their membership, right? So it wasn't just that Panthers were just a bunch of uneducated, you know, young hoodlums or just a bunch of kids who just wanted to get in, in fights with the police. No, they really were educated young men and women who knew their stuff, right? They knew what they were representing and they knew what ideology that they uh, subscribed to, right? The, the choice of literature, it reflected their increased focus on Marxism, socialism, and, communi and communism in general. The Deputy Minister of Information Rufus Chaka Walls, along with a staff of 20 Panthers, he oversaw distributing the Black Panther newspaper. By late May, the chapter was selling 8,000 copies per week, and they planned to increase sales to 15,000 per week. So that's a lot of freaking newspapers. That's a good sign. That means they're distributing their message throughout the community. 18-year-old Deputy Minister of Health Ronald Satchel and a group of about 10 Panthers were tasked with trying to organize a medical clinic, but they were having a hard time getting doctors to donate their time. It was hard for them to get people to commit to the program. Communications Secretary Ann Campbell, with a staff of three, served as the office manager, and then she also oversaw communications within the chapter and uh, gathered reports from the national office and handled all of the mail. Yvonne King, in her early 20s, organized black workers as the deputy minister of labor. Then later on, she assumed the role of field secretary and oversaw community programs. The two-story Chicago Black Panther office was located at 2350 West Madison Street, and it was a really impressive presence in the community quote under three large bay windows on the second floor a sign with a large hand painted black lettering on a white background read Illinois chapter Black Panther Party the sign was bookended on the left and right by life-size mirror images of a black panther springing into action in defense of the office and against any attackers end quote 
Under the sign hung seven posters of the Panthers' inspirations. Huey Newton and Bobby Seale armed in defense of the original Panther office, Eldridge Cleaver speaking, Malcolm X, and an Emery Douglas painting of young Bobby Hutton, who if you guys go back and uh, look at some of the past episodes, we talked about the murder of Bobby Hutton at the hands of police. And also, of course, the iconic, uh, iconic photo of Huey with a shotgun in one hand and a spear in the other hand, and he's sitting on his wicker throne. I'm pretty sure you guys have seen that before if you've done any type of studying about Black Power or the Black Panther Party, all right? So let's talk about the police raids, all right? So police were on the Panthers hard, right? Hard and heavy. They were would use any type of... Ex of excuse to harass them, to bully them, to arrest them, to charge them with all sort of crimes. So we're going to go through a bunch of different raids and we're going to talk about what caused them and what was the outcome, all right? As the Chicago Panthers grew in strength, state efforts to repress them escalated. At around 5.30 in the morning on Wednesday, June 4th, the FBI raided the Chicago Black Panthers headquarters on Madison Street. Agents armed with machine guns, rifles, and handguns used sledgehammers to break down two steel doors on the second floor office. The police didn't even bother to produce search warrants as they sacked the office and arrested eight Panthers. FBI agents told the media that they had found several guns and ammunition in the office, but the, we but the weapons were not automatic and did not violate any actual federal regulation. They were illegal. Bobby Rush, who was the deputy uh, director of the chapter, he held a press conference the next day calling the FBI's tactics illegal and vowing to press charges. Rush said that the agents left the office in complete disarray, creating more than $20,000 in property damage, including destroying two desks and miscellaneous office equipment. The FBI also confiscated a safe containing $3,000, which I'm sure disappeared, which the Panthers had actually planned to use to equip a health clinic that they had hoped to open in July. Bobby Rush described the raid as part of a planned effort by the FBI to crush the Panthers, citing similar raids in Detroit, New York, Connecticut, San Francisco, Indianapolis, Des Moines, Iowa, and Denver, Colorado. So I had just said in the intro that the Panthers were under attack in multiple states by multiple state agencies and also the federal government, which is pretty scary. On Tuesday, June 10th, 1969, a Cook County grand jury indicted Fred Hampton, his bodyguard William O'Neill, and 14 other leading members of the Illinois Black Panther Party on charges that, the, that included kidnapping and unlawful use of a weapon. State Attorney Edward V. Haran claimed that the charges stemmed from the kidnapping and torture of a woman who had stored guns for the Panthers and then hidden them. Bail was initially set at $100,000 for everyone except O'Neill. His was only $10,000, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, right? O'Neill was a rat, and we're going to talk about him. Hampton was never actually officially accu uh, accused but William O'Neill was later ex exposed as an FBI snitch, an informant. 
right? Well, well, what I meant to say was Hampton was never actually charged, right? He was arrested, but he wasn't charged officially. On the morning of July 14, 1969, Larry Roberson and fellow Panther Grady Moore were selling the Black Panther magazine when he saw two police officers questioning black citizens about a suspected theft of produce from a local store. According to the Panthers account, the police lined up more than a dozen people, mostly older black men, against the wall and were harassing them. The police claimed to just have been doing a standard investigation, asking questions and making reports when Roberson and Moore approached and asked them what they were doing. The law enforcement story goes that police asked the Panthers politely to leave, to get the heck out of there. And that is when Moore and Robertson became belligerent, calling themselves protectors of the community. The Black Panther newspaper, however, reported that Moore and Robertson were not armed. But police told the press that Robertson drew a gun and started shooting. Robertson was shot, was shot three times by police and taken to the county hospital. Both Moore and Robertson were arrested on charges of attempted murder. No police officers were wounded. You can probably start to see a trend forming, right? Two weeks later, Chicago police raided the Black Panther office again. <laughs> Jeez. They arrived at 1.15 a.m. on Thursday, July 31st, following a community rally outside of the office that happened the previous afternoon. 24 police cars shut down the entire Madison Street and the officers attempted to storm the building. Hampton had already been in jail on the ice cream robbery charge that we talked about on the first episode, episode, and no Panther leaders were present at the office. Three Panthers, Joseph Pete Heinen, Larry White, and Alvin Jeffers, each armed with a handgun, held off police for 35 minutes until they ran out of ammunition. Eventually, police shot through the steel door and stormed upstairs, badly beating the Panthers with rifle butts, knocking Larry White unconscious and breaking his jaw. All the Panthers were badly injured and arrested on charges of, of course, attempted murder. Then, according to the Panthers' account, police burned the entire second floor of the headquarters. Video footage shows that the flame-charred office was ransacked with hundreds of bullets pockmarking the building's outer wall and the front door. Police claimed they were fired upon first as they approached the building and that the fire was caused by tear gas canisters which they shot into the windows that exploded on impact and caught the office on fire. People at the scene threw rocks and bottles at the police during the incident and, he and helped repair the building in the following days. All right, so this is just the initial raid, right? Once the police smelled blood in the water once they figured that they could find maybe find a little bit of stuff in the office they kept at it again and again and again they kept harassing the panthers they kept um just finding different excuses to raid their office looking for stuff fishing right they don't even need a warrant they just walked they just walk up there and just break the door down and just arrest everybody and then if you shoot back you get arrested for attempted murder right and they can legally kill you it's not like it is now there's no body cameras there's no people with phones taking recordings. None of that exists. So it's the police word versus the Panthers word. Who do you think a jury or a judge is going to believe, right? Obviously, it's going to be law enforcement side. 
Okay? Panthers at war. All right, guys. So at this point, y'all can start to see a trend forming. The Panthers and their allies were wide awake now. Right? Everyone was aware of what was going on. It was now obvious that they were under siege by local law enforcement. New preparations were made for future raids. Video footage taken by Panther allies showed dozens of members cleaning and checking guns. According to Waldo Martin, Panthers were prepared for any danger scenario. Quote, in the video, one Panther, a woman, asked various members for their blood types, marking their answers on a clipboard. Another passes out cloth for people to use to cover their mouths and faces in the event of a tear gas attack. End quote. Another raid, another raid occurred on the morning of Saturday, October 4th. The ra- this is the, what, third or fourth raid? This is the third raid in a few months. The raid played out in a similar fashion to the July raid. Officers shot up the front doors and fired hundreds of rounds into the building. The police set the office on fire, smashed equipment, and destroyed supplies of food that were supposed to go to the free breakfast program. And, uh, after the Panthers eventually stopped resisting, six were arrested on charges of attempted murder. That is like the most common charge that they hit the Panthers with because they would shoot first, the Panthers would defend themselves, then they would charge them with attempted murder. Neighbors carried buckets of water up the stairs to help put the fires out that were intentionally set by the police. With the constant harassment, raids, attacks, and arrests by the police, many black organizations began to line up to support the Chicago Panthers. Many believed that such violent and unjust actions by law enforcement threatened black people across the country. If it could be done to a large organization like the Black Panther Party, right, because at this point, the Black Panther Party was in many, many states across the country. It could, it could be done to anybody. If it can, can be done, it could, 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 could. I keep stumbling over that. If it can be done to the BPP, it can be done to anybody, all right? Some in the new black coalition that formed to support the Panthers felt that resisting the repression of law enforcement was a matter of life and death, and for good reason. For example, let's go back to July. Back in July, the ambulance, remember we talked about the raid where Mr. Larry Robertson was injured? Or not the raid, remember the situation where Larry Robertson confronted the police when they were lining up all those older gentlemen and harassing them about the theft at the grocery store? Well, Larry Robertson was hurt in that incident. And the ambulance that took Larry Robertson to the hospital arrived with his patient in good condition, right? So Larry had no life-threatening injuries. He seemed stable. He was definitely going to make it, right? He was expected to survive. He had superficial wounds. Yet, he died in the hospital on September 4th from a combination of injuries sustained in the shooting and poor medical care, right? So you go, the, you go to the hospital just fine, and you leave in a body bag. So even if you survived a police raid, even if you were beat up by police and harassed and arrested and thrown in jail, you might not survive in custody. We see it now with Sandra Bland and others, right? They get arrested by police alive, right? Taken to jail alive, and they end up dead. And no one seems to know why, right? This did not start with Miss Sandra Bland. It's been happening for decades with the police. Author Walter Martin writes, quote, 
What made the stories of the Panther repression so compelling to many young blacks in Chicago was not how unusual they were, but how common. The summer had been filled with violence, and many young black people have died in conflict with the Chicago police, end quote. On October 5th, police shot a 16-year-old John Soto in the back of the head, killing him. Eyewitness reports claim that police had, unprovoked of course, fired as Soto walked away. Soto's older brother, a black community activist and a decorated army sergeant on leave from Vietnam, he helped organize rallies to, to protest his baby brother's murder. And then guess what happened to him? Five days later, on October 10th, police fatally shot the brother, Michael Soto, as well, claiming, quote, claiming they caught him in a robbery attempt. Yeah, that's bull-ish. In August, police killed another teenager, 19-year-old Linda Anderson, by firing a shotgun through her apartment's door. They claimed to have been trying to protect her from an attempted rape, rape by an acquaintance. In 1969 to 1970, check this, police killed 59 blacks versus only 19 whites in a city where whites outnumbered blacks more than two to one. How does that happen? How does that happen? A black person in Chicago was six times more likely to be killed by the police than a white citizen. You're more likely in Chicago in 1969 and 1970 to be killed by law enforcement than to be killed by anyone else. If you're black and you were killed in Chicago, you had a good chance it was a, a police officer who did it. So let's talk about the tragedy of December 4th, actually the murder that, that occurred on December 4th, 1969. But before we do that, we're gonna take a quick musical interlude. I hope you guys are enjoying the podcast. We're moving fast. got the smooth flow going on you know I figured this was not a you know joyous podcast this is a very disturbing episode because it really shows how dangerous police and government repression can be to the lives and freedoms of citizens if law enforcement or the government or the federal government decides to target a group or target an individual is very, very dangerous for that person. And it's a slippery slope as far as taking away life, liberty, and the ability to exercise your constitutional rights of free speech, all right? Having a different opinion as the powers that be can be dangerous sometimes, especially during this era. All right, let's talk about December 4th, 1969. The national headquarters of the FBI directed its Chicago field office to establish 
a counterintelligence program against the Chicago Black Panther Party in the fall of 68. The last episode of the podcast, it was a bonus episode, we talked about the FBI's counterintelligence program. Go check it out. Following this directive, agents began to closely monitor the Panthers via a warrantless wiretap of their office and other illegal covert means. A special racial matters squad was organized to spearhead actions against the Panthers. Roy M. Mitchell, an agent in the squad, first recruited William O'Neill while he was in prison in Cook County Jail and got him to infiltrate the Panthers and provide information to the FBI. O'Neill was a rat. Remember I talked about Fred Hampton's bodyguard, William O'Neill? This is who we're talking about. On November, on November 1st, the day the Chicago Black Panther Party opened their office, O'Neill was already an active government informant. O'Neill went to the office and joined up. As a competent and eager young recruit, O'Neill was soon appointed chief of security. The Chicago FBI worked hand-in-hand with local law enforcement, mostly through the office of Edward V. Haran, Haran, who was the Cook County State's Attorney in November of 1968. The State Attorney's Office created a special prosecution unit known as SPU, putting the Assistant State Attorney, Richard Jalovec, in charge. Starting in April of 69, Jalovec worked closely with Mitchell to target the Panthers. On the night of November 13th, Agent Mitchell met with his snitch, William O'Neill, and showed him pictures of the two dead police officers that were killed earlier that day by a Panther, Spurgeon Winters. Winters, earlier in the day, had a violent firefight with police, leaving multiple police injured, two cops killed, and Winters shot dead. In a series of covert meetings, Mitchell had O'Neill map out the floor plan of Fred Hampton's apartment, including the specific locations of his bed and his nightstand. He also wanted O'Neill to keep an eye out for people coming and going from the apartment and to determine if any weapons were present. Armed with the information provided by O'Neill, a hit squad of 14 SPU officers pulled up outside of Hampton's apartment at 4.30 a.m. on December 4th. They did not bring the standard police tactical equipment designed for a high-risk warrant like tear gas and sound equipment. Rather, they were armed to the teeth with a a Thompson submachine gun, five shotguns, a carbine, 19 38 caliber revolvers, and one uh, 357 revolver. The assault was quick and decisive. Within 15 minutes, Fred Hampton was shot dead, shot twice in the head as he slept in his bed. Panther leader Mark Clark, who had come to visit from Peoria, Illinois, was also murdered. Seven other Panthers in the apartment were arrested on charges of attempted murder, aggravated battery, and and unlawful use of weapons. One SPU officer was wounded, and he was shot in the leg. The state attorney told the press that the Panthers had shot first and continued to fire despite warning from police from outside of the door. Quote, the immediate violent criminal reaction of the occupants 
in shooting and announced all police officers emphasize the extreme viciousness of the Black Panther Party. So does their refusal to cease firing at the police officers when urged to do so several times. Panthers claimed the SPU never knocked and just barged in the door and started shooting. The Chicago FBI field office deemed the raid a massive success, in part due to the valuable information provided by O'Neill. After the raid, FBI, the FBI field office wrote to headquarters praising O'Neill and asking for a $300 bonus for O'Neill. Quote, prior to the raid, a detailed inventory of the weapons and also a detailed floor plan of the apartment were furnished to local authorities. In addition, the identities of Black Panther Party members utilizing the apartment at the above address were furnished. This information was not available from any other source and subsequently proved to be of tremendous value to police officers participating in a raid on the morning of, of 12-4-69. The raid was based on the information furnished by the informant. End quote. The bonus for O'Neill was approved. Before sunrise on Friday, December 5th, police raided Bobby Rush's apartment. Luckily, Rush was not home, or he might have met a similar fate as his friend. Later that day, Rush began conducting tours of Hampton's bullet-ridden, blood-soaked apartment for the press and for local citizens. Rush insisted that, quote, this was not a shootout. Nobody in the apartment had a chance to fire a gun, and we can prove it by the fact that there are no bullet holes outside in the hallways or outside, just big gaping holes in Fred's bedroom where they fired on him, end quote. The New York Times drew similar conclusions in their reporting, quote, Most of the rooms and walls appeared to be free of scars, pot marks, and bullet holes. There were clusters of bullet holes and the gouges of shotgun blasts in the places where the Panthers said the two men had been killed and four others had been wounded. There were no bullet marks in the area of the two doors through which the police said they entered. All right, so that is super shady. It's well known that the police were targeting and trying to wipe the BPP off the face of the earth. And this raid, they achieved their goal. The, the goal of the raid was basically to assassinate Fred Hampton. That was the goal, right? They came in heavily armed, all right? They came in, in uh, early morning hours, all right? They came with one purpose. They didn't announce themselves. They kicked that door in and started shooting everyone, all right? We're going to go into the swell, the upswell of support from the community across the nation. Outpouring of support flooded in from across the country for Hampton, Clark, and the Panthers. Black city leaders called for an independent investigation of the incident. New left attorneys Francis Andrew, Kermit, Kermit Coleman, and James Montgomery volunteered to represent the Panthers and, their, and the families of Hampton and Clark. An independent autopsy of Hampton by three highly esteemed doctors, doctors and pathologists con, con, excuse me, concluded, I can't talk, an independent autopsy of Hampton by three highly esteemed doctors and pathologists concluded that Hampton had been shot and killed by bullets fired from an angle 
slightly above and behind his head as he was laying down. They found no powder burns on his hands, which would have indicated that he fired at the officers as the state claimed. The Panthers used the public attention to organize support through popular education, offering more tours of the apartment where Hampton and Clark had been murdered. In the following weeks, thousands of people, many journalists, flocked to the apartment to mourn the deaths and see the evidence for themselves. Panther tour guides showed visitors unscathed walls where police had entered and where they reportedly had stood during the raid. And then they showed the clusters of bullet holes and the large pools of blood where the Panthers had been shot. Tours continued until December 17th when Cook County authorities finally sealed off the apartment. The National Organization of the Black Panther Party portrayed the killings as political assassinations and as part of a national governmental conspiracy to repress the Panthers. Chief Attorney Charles Gary made the claim that the two men were the 27th and 28th Panthers killed by police since January of 1968. Panther Chief of Staff David Hilliard spoke out against the police targeting of his party. Quote, the organized attempt to destroy the BPP brought to the attention of the American people the atrociousness of the American government in terms of its subjects. People are moving for their freedom. The very fact that they attacked us so openly shows that they are a very brutal people, that they are barbarous, criminal elements against society, end quote. Despite the amount of people agreeing with the Panthers' political position was relatively small, despite not many people agree with them politically as compared to the general population, the murder of Hampton and Clark was a very concerning part of a pattern of government repression that posed a much broader threat to life and freedom. Many mainstream political organizations like the NAACP, the Congress on Racial Equality, the American Jewish Committee, Maywood's own mayor's office, the Chicago ALCU, and the United Auto Workers called for independent investigations into the killings. Waldo Martin writes that the director of the Chicago Urban League contended that, quote, the Panthers believe in whatever the Panthers believe in, they shouldn't be shot down like dogs in the street, end quote. On December 8th, the Chicago Daily Defender, the nation's largest black newspaper, spoke out against the government conspiracy to repress the Panthers, quote, are blacks to be murdered for what they believe or what they say? Is the slaying of leaders of the Black Panthers across the nation a part of a na national conspiracy to destroy their organization? These and similar questions are being asked in the black community of Chicago, even by those who have little or no sympathy for the Panther Party, end quote. At the same time, black organizations rallied to the Panthers' defense. Their new left allies took to the streets in support. 65 young new leftists were arrested on Park Avenue in New York City on December, on December 9th for protesting Hampton's killing outside an award dinner attended by President Nixon. Some were charged with breaking windows at Saks Fifth Avenue and other upscale stores 
and with assaulting police officers. At Panther offices nationwide, young white allies, many of them attorneys, held 24-7 vigils to help prevent additional raids. Some brought sleeping bags and bedding and slept in the Panthers' offices each night. Alan Broski, a young lawyer, explained the actions. Quote, we feel this, is, this will be a deterrent to lawless raids by the police on Panthers' headquarters. End quote. On December 9th, 3,000 people crowded into a church in Maywood, Illinois, for the memorial service of Fred Hampton. The Reverend Ralph Abernathy, a close associate of Martin Luther King Jr. and head of the SCLC, delivered the main eulogy, declaring, quote, If the United States is successful in crushing the Black Panthers, it won't be too long before they cross the SCLC, the Urban League, and any other organization trying to make things better, end quote. A demand for answers. National black political leaders condemned the government and praised the Black Panther Party. Mr. Adam Clayton Powell claimed that federal officials were conspiring to exterminate the Black Panthers. Reverend Jesse Jackson published a column in the Chicago Tribune endorsing the Black Panthers' explanation that Fred Hampton had been murdered by police while he slept, calling his murder a, quote, crucifixion and calling on blacks to, quote, resurrect his spirit for liberation. Proud radical Robert Williams, the author of the outstanding book Negroes with Guns and North Carolina and a North Carolina armed defense activist, returned from his exile in Cuba in support of the Black Panther Party. Williams exclaimed, quote, it is not just a campaign against the Panthers. It is not a campaign just against the blacks. It is a campaign against all of those who oppose what is taking place in America today. What is happening to the Panthers is happening to all of us, end quote. Even moderate national black and political leaders supported the idea of a public investigation. Whitney Young, national director of the Urban League, and Roy Wilkins, executive director of the NAACP, made appeals for a special investigation on the killings of Hampton and Clark. Five black congressmen, Louis Stokes from Ohio, Charles Diggs from Michigan, Adam Clayton Powell from New York, John Conyers from Michigan, and William Clay from Missouri, toured the apartment with Bobby Rush. They also held a public hearing on Chicago's west side to listen and respond to communities' concerns about the shootings. As expected, and everyone knew this was happen, the internal Chicago police investigation found no fault on part of the SPU, a finding seconded by the Cook County Coroner's Office. In response to public pressure, the Justice Department appointed a federal grand jury to investigate the killings of Hampton and Clark. On January 6th, Bobby Rush informed the press that results of a blood test of Fred Hampton in the independent autopsy revealed a heavy dose of seconal, a drug that induces sleep a drug that makes you pretty much unable to move. Rush alleged that the killing of Hampton was a government conspiracy and that Hampton had been drugged by an FBI infiltrator, probably William O'Neill, to facilitate his murder. Hampton's fiance, Deborah Johnson, who at the time was eight months pregnant and arrested during the raid, recounted Hampton's strange behavior the night of the raid. Quote, 
She said that Hampton never got up from his bed during the raid and remained silent. He woke up and slightly lifted his head as guns were being fired, but barely moved and never said anything. After the first wave of shooting, police arrested Johnson, pulled her out of the bedroom and into the kitchen. She said that she heard a police officer say, he's barely alive, he will barely make it. Then the police started shooting again. She says he heard a, quote, a, a sister scream. Then a police officer said he is good and dead now. On May 8, 1970, the state attorney dropped all charges against the seven surviving Panthers arrested in the December 4th raid, saying that there was no proof that any of the defendants had fired at police. A week later, a federal grand jury issued a 250-page report noting that at least 82 bullets were, had been fired by the SPU officers and only one shot appeared to have been fired by the Panthers. After more than a decade of legal proceedings, which included a Supreme Court hearing, the government eventually settled in 1982, agreeing to pay $1.82 million to the estates of Hampton, Clark, and the Panther survivors of the incident, survivors of the incident, with the federal, county, and city governments agreeing to split the bill. So, the government murdered Fred Hampton, period. They came in, they shot 82 bullets, No, only one shot was fired back at them. Someone drugged Fred, they shot and killed him in his bed, he didn't even get up. He was so drugged he couldn't even get out of bed. And guess what? None of the officers were charged with anything, no one was charged from the government. All they did was pay a measly $1.8 million to the family to try to shut them up and go about their business. The government was getting away with this in that time period. They don't get away with it anymore. There's a lot of people out there that are uh, holding police, right, and uh, local officials to task, right? Everyone has a camera. Everything is recorded. There's a lot of different ways to fight against this type of injustice, but it still happens all the time. And uh, for, for the folks who have been protesting out there um, and, and, and on the front lines, just know that this has been going on for decades and that we're making progress. It's not like it used to be. And I really wanted to tell Fred Hampton's story because this is an American story. This is similar to what's been going on with the police ki killings of unarmed black people recently in the past, you know, four or five years. <laughs> I mean, they have a license to kill. The FBI specifically designed a unit to target and assassinate their enemies. And I just hope that me doing these episodes have kind of showed you guys a little bit of the struggle that has evolved from back in the 50s when the uh, counterintelligence program from the FBI was first created to now, right? There's still these incidents, of these incidents where the police get away with murder. And we see it seems like daily these days alright um, I hope you enjoyed the podcast uh, we're about 48 minutes so we're going to stop there I don't like going over an hour if I can avoid it um, this series was dedicated to the memory the legacy and the life of Fred Hampton God bless him and his family he's one of the people I look up to in the black power movement he's a brilliant he was a brilliant man 
young man, young man actually, and he's a legend and a hero. And I just wanted to do uh, two episodes to give him his due and praise him and just just say that, hey, the fight, his fight is not over. We are fighting every single day. And I want to do my part through the podcast to spread knowledge and just help people get a little sense of American history and the struggles that have been going on in this country under the radar. God bless you guys. I love everyone. <laughs> I hope you guys have a great freaking weekend. Watch the UFC fight, all right? Kobe Covington versus Jorge Masvidal comes on tonight. It's going to be great. It's going to be fireworks. Stay positive. Put God and your family first. Work hard. Don't let anyone tell you you can't achieve your dreams because you can. Thank you so much for listening. Ape. more coming soon so be prepared for more great stuff great episodes we're getting after it we're doing a podcast about the roman centurion all right so we're going in a whole different direction soon stay tuned for that we out y'all peace